0: just a moment to the book of Philippians. book of Philippians chapter 4, we'll be reading a verse from there in just a a second. As you're taking your Bibles out and turning to that passage, I would like to say just how thankful I am to be here with each and every one of you, to have those who had been away from us back with us, who had been traveling and returned home safely, those who had been sick, not been able to be here, to, to be feeling better and be here with us again. It's a great encouragement to see each and every one of you uh, and, and I hope that as as we go through our lesson this this morning, that it can be an encouragement to you as well, uh, as we think about a topic that may feel a bit elementary. I heard a story um, a couple years ago about my grandfather. My grandfather was a preacher, uh, he preached around the state of Kentucky and, and a little bit in Indiana and a little bit further south. And towards the end of his life, he was preaching in Paris, Kentucky with another man and uh, speaking to that other man, he said that he, he decided to scroll, stroll over to my grandfather's office. Uh, he was not there at the time to look at what he was studying. What does a, a preacher who's been preaching the Bible for, for the past 40 years, what does he study? What's, what's the topic that he's looking at? And he thought it would be some, some great deep topic, and he, he thought it would uh, really going to be something that would shock him. And truthfully, he was shocked. When he got to his, his office and realized that his Bible was open and commentaries and dictionaries and everything open to one subject, and it's the subject we will reflect upon this morning, and that is the subject of God. He said, for a moment I was, I was a little bit surprised that, that a man who had preached so long would still be, be looking at the topic of God, that he would not have that fully understood. And he said, I, I very quickly realized the, the foolishness in that, in that thought. Uh, and I believe that uh, him, him telling that story to me and, and and meditating as well on this thought that we can never truly know enough about God. Uh, today celebrates the twelve years that me and Holly have been married together. I know Holly much better now these twelve years later than the day that we married. every year i wouldn 't say every day, but every year I learned something new about her that i I didn't know previously. And I don't think we ever come to a point in our relationships with our, with our spouses, with our parents, with our children, that we say, you know what, I know everything there is to know about this person. How much more true is that with the Word of God and with God Himself? The passage in Philippians chapter 4 I want you to read is verse 8. It says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just... Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Some of the translations say dwell upon these things, like the New American Standard. The ESV says think about these things. In fact, the NLT says think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And that is the, the view behind the lesson that we, are, we have done. We, we're c- going to continue in a series on this. We talked once about... Reflecting upon the church and and dwelling and meditating upon what the word says about the church. I'd like to do the same thing this morning, reflecting and dwelling and meditating upon who God is and turn our attention to the author of this book in which we have to read. In doing so, the first place we must turn to is to the very beginning Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. There it says, In the beginning, God. Created the heavens and the earth. The first thing we learn as we open God's Word, the first thing that is revealed to us is that from the beginning, when there was nothing, there was God. He was there in the beginning, and both the heavens and the earth, all that we can see, all that we can, uh, can view with our, with our own mind uh, or with our own eyes, with, with the help of, of t- powerful telescopes and powerful microscopes, everything that we, can, that we can know and see and touch and feel was created by this being that was there in the beginning. In fact, if we read on down a few verses to verse 24, it says, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle, And creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and every thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God is not only in the beginning, as we read here. He is the creator of everything that we can see, and He is the giver of life. He created the physical bodies in which we dwell. He created the the plants and the animals. He created the stars and the celestial beings. He created the molecules and and the, the, the tiny things that make up everything. But more important than that, he gave life to all of that. He put life within it. All living creatures, including mankind, and especially mankind, he created life and made that life in his own image. In the image of God we were made. Now that is not to say that we were made uh, in the physical image of God. Um, Whether that is true or not is something that we we just may have to, to wait and find out on the great day of judgment. But we know God is spirit. God is not a physical being. What He looks like is not revealed to us. But we know that in the image of Him we were created. We are created to be like Him. We are created to to walk and mimic ourselves. And even the command to go forth and to multiply was given to them to go forth and make more people like Him, like His image. Then we go down a little bit more. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis chapter 14, we read here from the king of Salem, Melchizedek. And he says in verses, verses 18 through 20, Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine he was the priest of God most high and he blessed him and said blessed be Abraham of God most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered you or delivered your enemies into your hand and he gave him a tithe of all Melchizedek king Melchizedek the high priest of God understood the relationship that he had with God, God was most high. There was not anything higher than God, and there never will be anything higher than God. As we have seen, he is from the beginning. He outranks everything in in terms of who was there first. That's the the argument my children make. It's my turn to watch TV, but I picked up the remote first. Well, God outranks everyone in that he was there from the beginning, but he outranks everyone in fact that he is most powerful. He created all life. He gave a uh, life to all that is created. And so he truly is most high. Paul introduces him in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, as he strolled through uh, the city of Athens, and as he made his way to the Areopagus to speak to the men of Athens, he tells them, I noticed all of your statues, I noticed the, the monuments for all the many different gods, and truly, you are a religious people. You have a heart to, to serve that which is higher than you. And so, this God that you have the statue of, the, the unknown God, let me introduce you to him. And he you, introduces them to him as the Lord of heavens and earth, the God over top of the heavens and the earth. It's as if he was saying, He is the God most high. There is not anything higher in which you can lord over. And, and throughout the Bible, he is proclaimed as such. He is from the beginning, He is the Creator. He is the giver of life, and He is the Lord Most High over top of all creation. We learn these things in the first several chapters of the book of Genesis, but as we continue to read through His Word, we grow to draw, or we are drawn closer to Him in our knowledge, and we learn more. Turn over to the book of Amos, the book of Amos, and we'll look in verse in chapter five. Amos chapter five. Makes some interesting comments about who God is. In verse eight, he says that he made the Pleiads and, the, and Orion. He turns the shadow of death into morning. He makes the day dark as night. He calls the waters of the sea, or he calls for the waters of the sea, and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Amos is speaking unto the power of God. We say sometimes that he is omnipotent. That means that he has all power. Um, and really, these, these titles that we have given him, they don't truly do, ju- uh, do justice to who he is. We would not know power if it were not for God. That is the best way that we have found to describe him. But he is so far above that. But Amos points out his power here over the creation that he has made. He made the constellations. He set the stars in, the, in their place in the heavens, the Pleiades and Orion, these are constellations. He controls the, the rotation of, of the earth around the sun. He says he turns the shadow of death into morning and makes the day dark as night. He says he controls the day and the night, and he also controls the water cycle. Now, and I'll tell you what, as, as smart as we are, we, it took us many years to figure out, oh, that, that water that's coming down from the sky, it came from somewhere. It was drawn up from the water, the bodies of water around us, from the lakes and the streams and the oceans and, and dropped down upon us. And we thought we were pretty nifty. Amos figured this out much long ago because he attributes it to God. He knows that God is the one that set this cycle in order, that drew the water up from the sea, he says in verse 8, calls the water of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. That is a powerful God to set all that in order. In chapter 4, can go back just a few verses to verse thirteen. It says he behold, for behold he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is, and makes the morning darkness. He treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God of hosts is his name. Again, what did this, this all powerful God do? He created the formation of the ground. He turned the the uh, uh, he can turn a flat plain into a mountain. He can turn a mountain into a valley. Uh, the winds are, are His creation and even more powerful than that. We might say, you know, man has been able to do that. We can, you go to Hazard, you'll find all sorts of mountains that have been turned into valleys. You'll find uh, where we go in, we'll take the top off a mountain just in, in just a, a, no time at all. We can pile up dirt to, to as high as we want to to make our own mountains. These things uh, are, are not any relation to the way God has done that and, and pale in comparison but even more powerful than all that, he says that he knows the minds of men. And all that we can do, we can't know what somebody else is thinking. We can think we know what they're thinking. We can assume what they're thinking. God knows what is on the minds of men. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Flip over to the book of Psalms for just a moment. Psalm 139, in verses 1-6. through 6, Says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledgeable, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. In fact, in verse thirteen, he says, "You have." formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. God has known man from the very creation of man, from the, the moment in which they, they, uh, life is created in the womb of the mother. God knows His creation. He knows everything about them. We read other places that He has counted the very hairs on their heads. He knows what we are thinking. He knows our hearts. And that is a knowledge that is far above any knowledge that we can ever hope to attain. And it goes to illustrate that God, while being omnipotent, all-knowing, He is also omniscient. All, or omnipotent is all-powerful, omniscient. He is all-knowing. And again, these titles, they don't do justice to describe what God is. Certainly, we would not even have knowledge if it weren't for our all-knowing God. In Hebrews chapter 4, There in verses 12-13, through a passage that we've turned to many times in our study of the book of Revelation. He says, "...for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and uh, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." There is no hiding our plan, no hiding our will, no hiding ourselves from God. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And what this also implies here is another word we have created to describe him. He is omnipresence. That is, He is all-present. He is all-everywhere. Uh, he is, he is, uh, there's no place in which we can go to hide from him. Jonah learned this. As Jonah decided, God has given me a, a, a task. He has sent me to Nineveh to, to proclaim this judgment. I don't want to do that. So what I'll do is I'll just, I won't let God know what I'm doing. I'll, I'll hide my plans from him, and I'll get on this ship. And not only will I hide my plans from him, I'll hide myself from him in the belly of this ship so that he won't find me. I'll go as far away as I can. Maybe he'll find somebody else to do this. That didn't work for Jonah. God knew his plans. God was with him in the belly of that ship. As we find later, God seemed to be with him in the belly of the fish that he sent to swallow him, to, to bring his thinking and bring his mind around. God is everywhere. Back over in Psalm 139. <clears throat> Flip back over there for a moment. Psalm 139, verses 7 now through, through uh, 16. It says, Where can I go from your spirit? But the night shines as the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were there. They all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there was none of them God is everywhere that's what the psalmist is saying here there is no place that I can go I can flee into the heavens and he speaks here of 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 the highest places of the earth into the sky itself and yet you are there he says I can descend into hell and he's talking not about that place of punishment but the word here is more accurately translated the grave into Sheol. I can go into the, the place of the dead and yet you are there there is nowhere I can go that you cannot find me. And that should bring two thoughts to our minds about God. One is a scary thought. One is the fact that we can't hide from God. When God's wrath is poured out upon His enemies, there is no place that they can possibly turn to to hide themselves from that wrath. That is a fearful thought. But The other one is a great thought. The other one is an encouraging thought, that there is no place that I can ever descend into. There is no place where I can go that God cannot find me, that I cannot be brought back out of that place. He is everywhere. And over in Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah 23 and verses 23 through 24, we continue on that thought saying, I am God near at hand, says the Lord. And not a God far off. Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? I have have heard what the prophets have said who prophesied lies in my name, saying I have dreamed, I have dreamed. He's telling them there's no place we can go that we can ever be separated from Him in this life. He is everywhere. So we understand now, God was there in the beginning. He trumps time. God was there in power. He has created all things. He has filled it with life. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere. And that should be enough. That should be all that we need. But we also serve a God that was not content to just give us enough, but rather to make us filled and overflowing with the blessings of knowledge of Him. In Psalm 19, verses 1-3, through 3, it says, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter, speeches, utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tabernacle for the Son." The heavens, the, the, the earth, the firmament, all that he has created declares his handiwork. The creation makes known to us the attributes of God, as the way it's described over in Romans. Hold your hand here in Psalms because we'll flip back to this in just a moment. But Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even so eternal, or even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. No one has any excuse to not believe in a supreme being. Now it's not to say that no one has rejected this knowledge. Certainly we we see throughout our, our schools and throughout our workplaces and throughout our, even our families, those that do such, such thing. But there is no excuse for that. Everything that we see, everything that has been created both in the heavens and in the earth has been created to show one thing, and that is that there was a creator, there was a designer, there was a force more powerful than simply a bang that instituted and created all of this that we see. It's His glory that's revealed in that creation. It's His will then, going a step farther, because He was not, again, not content just to give us the creation. His will is therefore revealed throughout His Word. As I said, keep your hand here in Psalm 19, because now we read verses 7-11. through We read first that that His glory is declared through the creation. Verse 7 goes on to speak about His Word. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward." Might draw our minds back to what we studied this morning in John. God's will is revealed over and over again throughout His Word. And that's truly what it is, as we also talked about in the class this morning. That it is not the words of of David, it is not the words of Moses, it is not the words of the prophets, of the, the apostles. It is the words of God, as 2 Timothy 3 tells us, words that were breathed in, words that were sent into the hearts and the minds of those that were writing to be preserved and to reveal His will to His creation. But if His glory, greatness of God, the majesty of God is revealed in the world around us, and if His will is what is revealed to us in His Word, then it's his love that is revealed to us in his Son. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11 tells us <clears throat> But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Over in 1 John chapter 4, you might remember us studying this not too terribly long ago. He said in verses 9-10 through 10, that He is a propitiation for us. It says, And this love of God was manifested towards us, How is it manifested towards us? Manifested towards us through the Son. God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a word that has long confused some of the best of scholars. There's arguments to be made over this, and I certainly don't want to... to sound as if i've got all the answers to to the concept of that idea of a propitiation but at its basic meaning it was a sacrifice that was made to cool off the anger of something greater than you you would be a a a king angry with you ready to kill you You you'd make a propitiation sacrifice to him something that would stand in place of his anger you're angry at me, I know, O oh king, so here is a sacrifice of, of, of something that I give to you, and, and your anger can, can now be on it and be taken off me. And usually it was a sacrifice of, of, of something of great value. We had nothing to give to this king. We had nothing to sacrifice of our own value, nothing that we could give to him to say, take your anger off of me. But yet the love of God is revealed in that he offered up that sacrifice of something that was of much more value than we could ever hope to attain, His only Son. He is the appeasing sacrifice for our sins. And finally, what we know about God is that He is faithful to His promises. Let's turn back over to Acts chapter 17 and let's, let's end our thinking, uh, end, end our reflecting of the word, what the Word says about Him. And what we read here In Acts chapter 17, again, this is Paul at the Areopagus. He has strolled through the city. He has seen the gods. He has told them about the God most high, the Lord of heaven and earth. And now he says in verse 24, God, this is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he's the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. You realize what Paul has done in just these few short verses? He's the God Most High. He is the Creator, all-powerful, all-knowing. He is the God that is not far off everywhere. He is the God that desires for us to seek Him. He is saying to them everything that we've just looked at in just a few short verses. Then He says in verse 28, For in Him we live and move and have our being also. Some of you of your own poets have said we are also His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. God made us to seek for Him. Even though He is not far away, We are to look for Him. We talked about magnets this morning. That is a great, great illustration for what God desires for us. We are not far away from that pull of God, but yet we have to seek Him. We have to move to Him, and He will draw nigh to us. But God also commands, as we learn here, all men to repent, for the judgment day is coming a day in which the world will be judged by that propitiation sacrifice, that which we were not able to offer up, the Son of God, Jesus. And God has offered assurance of that judgment by raising Jesus from the dead. Again, a demonstration of His great power, a demonstration of His great love. Sometimes we sing a song, our God is an awesome God. I don't think those words can be truly said far enough to illustrate how honest that statement is in our in our world our god is a truly awesome god he is transcendent yet personal he is worthy of belief he is worthy of praise and he is far worthy of obedience before we just wrap up this sermon these are the words of god this is the illustr the the these are the words which God breathed into his apostles, into his men who would reveal this word to us. But the truth about God is not, not so high and not so much a mystery that even men who are uninspired were not able to see it and tell others about it as well. I want you think of just a few quotes by men who have no inspiration whatsoever, but examine the world around them, examine the Word of God, and made some truly remarkable reflections. Abraham Lincoln said, I can see, I can see how it might be possible for someone to look around on earth and not believe in God. We see that every day. We see people who look around, who see, see terrible things happening, see men doing terrible things to mankind. And say, how can there be a God? Abraham Lincoln said, I can see how it might be possible for someone to look around on earth and not believe in God, but I cannot conceive how anyone could look up into the heavens and say there is no God. He was, he was illustrating and he was looking to what God said in his word, that his glory is revealed in the heavens and the earth. It is almost impossible for us to look at what is around us and not feel small to look at what is around us, at the creation that He has made, and not realize that we are a very small part in something, a much bigger machine. We think of sometimes maybe a watchmaker and a watch. Watches scream out to us that there is a watchmaker. There is no way on earth that... A, a, a cabinet fell over with springs and sprockets and, and, and fingers and glass and metal and all fell together in some cosmic accident and pff, a watch popped out of that. Nobody looks at a watch and says there's, there's definitely, that that was just some, some occurrence. How much more fascinating and intricate and detailed is the world and creation around us? There's no way that we can look at that and not on some level know that this is something far bigger than us that created this. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, he was a former atheist. He said, we can ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. Certainly, that, that, is, that is keeping with the Word of God throughout, throughout history. Many men have sought to ignore, have sought to turn their back, have sought to run away but we cannot escape the presence of God. A.W. Tozier, an American preacher, writer and magazine editor, said you can see God from anywhere if your mind is set to love and obey Him. And again, we look to some of the writings of the New Testament, in which Paul was battling this idea that you have to be somehow a higher spiritual being to be able to know the will of God, to be able to understand it, and it is right there in front of us. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we will just love Him enough, to follow after Him. We're going to speak more about that this afternoon in, in following after Him and studying His Word. But A.W. Tozer was saying, you can know God, you can see God, if you would just love Him enough to obey Him. And then finally, a Spanish essayist by the name of Miguel de Muno, a novelist, a poet, and a playwright, he said, we need God. I think we could stop at that comment right there and say, amen. We need God. Not in order to understand the why, but in order to feel and sustain the ultimate wherefore, to give a meaning to the universe. It's probably my favorite quote out of all of them. We need God not so we can understand why everything is happening the way it's happening. That's the question everybody wants to answer. Why has this happened? Why am I experiencing this? Why was this done this way? We don't need God to understand the why. We need God to understand the wherefore, the purpose for us being here. We find that purpose back all the way over in Genesis chapter 1. Back over in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he filled it with his creation, and he told his creation, go forth and prosper. Create people in my image. Create people that are going to be like me. God, we have reflected upon his creativity, upon his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. His glory revealed in His creation, His will revealed in His Word, His love revealed in His Son, and His judgment that is promised to come. Having done so, I just ask this one question. Don't you want to know God? Twelve years, it's not a long time that me and Holly have been together. As I said at the beginning of the lesson, I know her more and more every year. There should never be a point in our life when we say, I know enough about God. I can call it quits. I can move on to some other great and higher study. There is nothing higher than that. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, I'll I'll quote this and we'll be done. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. The most important thing in life is for us to know God and for us to serve Him. If you have not had the opportunity this morning to do so, to come to know God for who He is and to serve Him in the ways in which He has called us to serve Him. To, be, to, to sacrifice our life to Him. To give our life as a living sacrifice That means that we we look and we learn the ways in which He has called us to walk and to live and we we turn away, we repent from the ways in which we were living and we confess in our words and in our actions and in our lives that He is the God that we would know and that we are serving. We are baptized into into the death of His Son. We are made like Him in newness of life, risen up from the waters of baptism, free from our sins, If you desire to know Him and to serve Him in that way this morning, I encourage you, please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.